Ready for the interview And if you get a cue Live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo Let's have a combo Say what you feel Be real, that's the motto Real talk pronto Doctor D, PhD Hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Right, Corey, we're going to talk about politics and religion without killing each other. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that part is important. Yeah, not killing. I was re- I was reading a story this morning. Uh, Denver Riggleman, a former congressman from Virginia, yeah. and he and he came from a long line of intel, and he was sharing a story in his book about how his mother uh, saw him on TV one time and just said, "You're lost to me. I can't believe you're working for the other side and saying all these heartbreaking things." You know, sometimes we don't necessarily kill each other, but we sever relationships, important family relationships. And it's just to me, it's just heartbreaking that, number one, folks can go so far down a rabbit hole. Yeah. You know, I, I heard an academic refer to it as an epistemological bubble, like the way we know things, we're kind of insulated from any other influences other than our own little sphere, but also that they'd go that far down as to see anybody outside of that bubble as enemies and to see the world through this, you know, zero sum, you know, warlike mentality to the extent that you would, you would sever ties with your, your immediate family. It just, to me, it's heartbreaking, man. So whether we kill each other or not, I think we can, we can actually take it a step further, at least one or two, right? Most definitely. So well, maybe let's backtrack on this a little bit to get some further insight. I mean, it seemed like when I was growing up, I mean, there's obviously differences in what people believe in and stuff like that in politics, but it didn't seem as severe as it has been. I mean, can you trace maybe the beginnings of this current division between the two things and this kind of zero-sum game? If I had to pick a date, I would say 1987, when certain rules and laws were loosened so that entertainers uh, like Rush Limbaugh could do a different type of a radio program. And the tone of his his content from the very get-go was very oppositional, very adversarial, very this side, that side, you know? And he... He was so successful at what he did. He ended up he ended up spawning an industry not just on the AM radio dial, but he opened the door and started paving the way for Fox News just a few years after that, the birth of Fox News in the early 90s, which then opened the door for other uh, cable networks and all types of now we see all different types of media platforms where I think that's part of it. But I also think what exacerbated and brought to a whole other level is social media and the way social media works. Their their trade, if you will, or their currency is attention. So they're getting paid by their advertisers and other revenue streams based on how long eyeballs will stay on their platform and, and click and like and engage and comment. And the algorithms have indicated, I, I was reading another article this morning uh, about this very thing, that their algorithms have learned, or or originally programmers now partly through AI, have learned what types of posts, whether it's keywords or pictures or patterns, 
what types of posts get more engagement, what types of posts um, an individual consumer uh, of that content will respond to. And not so coincidentally, it's exactly the same things that get us hooked on drugs. It's there, there's our, literally in our brain chemistry, uh, you call it a dopamine hit or what mm -hmm. have you. Some folks will go and, and shoot up in order to satisfy this urge that they have for literally chemically the same reasons that they're going to hit like, or they're going to reply to a tweet, or they're going to engage with someone they see as an adversary in a negative sort of war with that warlike mentality. So it, um, I think it's a combination of things. It's taken years and years, but I also think I, I don't want to just end with that, that comment there. What I'd like to say is I, I see, I see a lot of hopeful signs that folks are recognizing this you with your background in in medicine and, and having this really great um full circle uh understanding of health overall health mm -hmm. i think you'd appreciate that part of solving the problem is understanding the problem yeah you know part of the way to healing is diagnosing properly and fully and i i see a lot of different entities whether it's government entities media entities uh independent individuals that are recognizing this problem and diagnosing it and and collectively we we have a lot of information on how this happened why this happened how individuals uh, can recognize it in themselves and their immediate circles uh, and what we can do about it so maybe, maybe we could talk about that but yeah. I, I don't I don't want to think that it's just all oh, it's all bad and we're going to hell in a handbasket I do think <laughs> that there's hope you know yeah, I think um, there's a lot of creation of tools and things that happen without understanding the consequences of those yeah. creations. And I feel like we're starting to understand, okay, we're getting enough data that's saying, this may be not that great for us. <laughs> now, what do we do about this? But we're also, and this is social media, but also we're getting a lot of data in different areas, like in politics, whether it's religion, these two things we talk about, it's like, hey, we might need to read de we might need to deconstruct this and understand why is there so much distrust in these institutions at this point it continues to grow we're seeing the information it seems like there's this interesting awakening happening um i i think so you know i mean we can we're i don't know when this will be released but we're recording this the day after tucker carlson the highest rated cable yes. news commentator was fired and I think a lot of us are going to look at that the way we look at a Rorschach test. We're going to see what we want <laughs> or what we're already inclined to see. Yeah. But there is something there. There is something there in in the filings that were released, even though they settled that uh, Fox News settled that lawsuit with um, with Dominion. Yeah. Uh, there are other cases in the works. Uh, we've seen other um, we see other information that's leaked out, not just about. Um, not just about Tucker Carlson, but about Hannity, about other networks, yeah. about other public figures. And it's hard to contain that. Even if you, even if one is in that epistemological bubble, it's hard to, it's hard to perpetuate that sealed off of an illusion. Yes. At the end of the day, I, I mean, at the end of the day, human beings are still sentient. You know, we're not completely we're not completely closed off to yeah. reality. It's kind of like the illustration I often use is, listen, man, follow the information where it leads, follow the truth where it leads. But if we're going to argue about the existence of gravity, 
Like <laughs> th there's, you're either going to come to a conclusion yeah. about that the hard way or the easy way. I'd prefer we talk about it yes. and that you could be compelled by, you know, written evidence as opposed to hard evidence that right. gravity actually exists, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And then I think what's also pretty interesting with this is that all of this compelling kind of information that gets leaked out or, you know, through legalities and they're like, oh, a lot of the people spewing things that are just crazy actually don't believe what they're saying. Yeah. But yeah. the public believes it. And so you're getting swindled. And I right. think the public's realizing like, well, maybe these people actually don't even care about this thing they're telling you. Oh, but they want ratings. Like, when are we going to wake up? They want the, the ratings. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to give you what they think you want, you know. Yeah, truth. Truth is dispensable. Is is dispensable? Di, yes. Dis, di, uh, and and you can you can get rid of it. It's 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 more like something that sounds truthy, you know, <laughs> is um is a commodity. You know, you you can sell that, uh, but it's neither here. There are some individuals that it's truth is neither here nor, nor there. Yeah. For some some folks, I, I'd like to think like me. Truth is a value. Truth is a virtue, and the pursuit of truth is is transcendent. You know, but for others, it's just a commodity. Something that sounds like truth is simply a commodity. And and they they recognize and there's a talent in recognizing that their audiences who will pay a lot of money yes. uh, and give them a lot of attention will hear what they want to hear. They'll hear what they want the truth to be more so than what the truth is, you know? Yeah. So I in a way, like there are days I'll I'll be totally candid. Like and this is more of a confession. I wish I had that talent. <laughs> to like, not get, can I curse on here? Like, yeah, not give course. a shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not so give a shit I... what the truth is, but just to be able to sell it, I'd be sitting in a much nicer house than I am <laughs> in right now. But I don't have that talent, if you want to call it that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have that talent. I'm not sure I want to have that talent. <laughs> like to just make it dispensable. Like for some, there's like some weird default mechanism for me. I mean, it's not weird, but like just. I can't see it. I can't like just go, well, you know, this isn't true, but eh, let's run with it. You know, yeah, like let's... I just don't operate that way. It's just not, it feels just so weird. Like, and I don't know, like, how does that start working in someone? Is it something they've always had or do they just kind of like turn to the side, to the dark side? And they were like, well, this is making me a lot of money, you know? like Well, like a lot of things, I think for, for most people in that situation, it it's either it's either this psychosis in a way yeah. and there's something broken at a heart level a soul level a, yeah. a mind level uh, but but for most people i was going to say it happens gradually and then it happens suddenly mm. <laughs> you know it's kind of like it's kind of like the the great depression there were all kinds of factors or the great recession here more yeah, in more recent yeah. history there are all kinds of signs we could have taken and seen that this thing was happening it, it, but it happened gradually over the course of, you know, 2007, 2008. And then it happened suddenly. Big, huge institution, multi-billion, hundred billion, trillion dollar organization tumbles. You know, and I think for, for our consciences, for our souls, I don't think someone turns to the dark side right away. I think it's something that happens gradually where you give yourself permission to fudge the truth just mm -hmm. a little bit. But you fudge the truth. Why? Like, listen, I go to church with people that are really, I, I believe they're good people with good intentions. And for the most part, they have a, a clear discernment of what's right and what's wrong. But 
they follow certain politicians or will hop online with certain campaigns because they think this is war. They see things through the lens of this is a war. We've identified who the enemy is and we are willing to sign on to all kinds of shenanigans uh, because we have to we have to fight them. We have to fight the enemy. So in a war, all you know, all hands on deck, and yeah. and there are no rules uh, in war. That's I'm I'm oversimplifying now, but that's basically the mindset. So how was uh, I think this is a really interesting segue into this to dive deeper into this intersection between politics and faith, and how this has become such a lightning rod of an yeah. issue, and how I think you and I talked kind of offline about this, how uh, religious faith-based people are in many ways embracing things that feel antithetical to the teachings of Jesus and to general faith-based belief as it is. How has this been going? How have we kind of like melded into this weird circumstance we're in? Well, this is not a new problem. I think that you know, whether you folks believe in the Bible um, or believe in the Bible to certain degrees or not, it at the very least shares profound, you know, stories that have uh, that have been passed through the generations now for thousands of years. So we see this story repeated where, you know, going back to say, uh, uh, and it's in a, a lot of folks know the golden calf, right. you know, they just heard those characters just heard the voice, and now I believe in it authoritatively, but I'm sharing it more from a literary standpoint. Yeah. Those characters just heard the very voice of God, you know, the, like the creator a, a directly from, from that that sound that they heard, and it was overwhelming. And their leader just went up the mountain to, to transcribe the law, what they were going to live by as a nation, as a people of God, right? And it wasn't even, it wasn't even... So 41 days. So that's uh, what it's uh, six weeks, not even six weeks. Mm -hmm. My wife, by the way, is at a training program right now. That's six and a half weeks long. You know, it feels long to me because I miss her. Yeah. But listen, it's six and a half weeks, you know, right. so they weren't even looking at six and a half weeks, <laughs> you know, and yet and yet they're like, ah, forget it. He's not coming down. This whole thing's a farce. They just heard the voice of God and they're doing this and building a golden calf. Now, the thing is, though. The the when we talk about idolatry, I think those of those folks who are uh, you know Jews, Christians, um, or or other types of religions that know idolatry is a bad thing, we often think we often think in terms of the golden calf as this thing that's 180 degrees off of their worship practices. This looked so different; it was the exact opposite of worshiping God. That's not true. The idolatry that we need to be wary of is the idolatry that's 10 degrees off of our normal practices 10 degrees off of godly worship right of worshiping the true chance tra transcendent you know we're not all of a sudden going to go from worshiping god and i'm just using this now again i happen yeah. to be a believer in, in in judeo christian that that's my background but um I, i'm using it more as as an analogy in terms of moral uh moral posture we're not going to go from worshiping god to worshiping the devil no right. The devil is is crafty. The devil will make himself will will he knows the language of God by heart. You know, he quotes to you know Eve in, right. in, in, in Genesis 3, the very scripture from, from God's, you know, God's God's words itself. So I think the kind of idolatry that that we have to be wary of is the idolatry that looks a lot like what we're used to worshiping, right? You know, so I think a lot of folks have used politics as their 
religion, that feeling they get from going to church, that feeling they get from, from going to synagogue, from going to temple, from going to their, their, their spiritual gatherings, that that's the feeling they get from going to uh, something like a MAGA convention, mm. you know, that sense of community, that sense of belonging, that sense of meaning that he's fighting for us. So, yeah. You know, what's interesting, some new information came out. This will come out Thursday, by the way. So Ooh. this is going to be very on topic. Okay. I think with all this, but there's a lot of information, new, I don't want to say evidence, just polling and, you know, whatever you think about polling, hey, it's varied, that whole thing, it's a sample, but uh, that this movement uh, is waning very hard right now. Now, what you may see will tell you that's not true, but when we start looking at the data, it's saying that this is a ship that's sinking for that. Now, how will this, it's interesting, how long does someone believe in something until it no longer, no longer serves them in a way that will keep fueling this desire? And it feels like there's, while there is something, is it a case of the minority having the megaphone on something like this, or is this a real pervasive thing? that yeah. we're experiencing. Well, I think that goes to your point earlier about you know some of the factors that are exacerbating this problem. Yeah. The media that we see isn't you know there there's not enough good stories out there, right? Mm. There's not enough stories of oh, this is encouraging and this is how the way things should be going. Yeah. You know, it's a story because it's out of the ordinary. Yeah. So naturally, you know, all different types of media figures, uh journalists, uh, from the independent media ecosystem as well as uh, big broadcast outlets, they're going to look for stories for you know for Fruit Loops that are you know <laughs> sound sound nutty you know and that's what we're going to see on our favorite news shows. Yeah. Um. From from all different perspectives, I'm making fun of the the red hat wearing sure. folks you know a little bit, yeah. but it, it's from all different stripes. Uh. So that's what's that that's what many of us are going to see on our news programs not those who who are out in front of my walmart registering people to vote or getting signatures for a ballot measure that they want to see happen that is mundane you know but yes. i think it's it's incumbent on those of us who are engaged to recognize what heschel said a, a mid 20th century um, jewish theologian he said sanctity is in the mundane you know, sanctity is in the mundane when we can. And, and I think a lot of folks who are spiritual, not just, you know, from my Judeo Christian background, from uh, my friends who study Eastern practices, you know, what, what is the path to sanity? What is the path to enlightenment? It's just breathing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you do That's meditation, right. it's such That's a revelation right. to me that like my, my brain is literally getting rewired, like neuroplasticity happens because I'm doing this meditation thing. Now, for the folks who aren't don't meditate, it's not some mystical thing. It's literally just breathing. Yes. <laughs> so yes. sanctity is in the very what what can be more mundane than that? You know? Yeah. Well, I think and also we we've also kind of constructed society in where that that is not considered something that's amazing. Like it has to be something amazing. It's kind of this social intoxication. Yeah, it's like everything is a dance. It's an outrageous story. It's something right. that is a striving towards uh, this incredible life that is so over the top and not boring, or yeah. not even boring. Just like it's just not regular. But but There's we nothing but then, wrong with that. Yeah, <laughs> and we we almost don't see the extraordinary 
because we see it all the time. Right. Right. We, but that, that's a talent that see, that's a whole other <laughs> talent that I would like to continue to tap into, yeah. which is the everyday seeing the extraordinary in the everyday. Mm. This is not to, to be taken for granted. Heschel went on further to say that every moment is another act of creation. Mm. Like this, the next moment is not guaranteed. We could all blow up. It could all be done. You know, mm. he, I believe the big bang makes a ton of sense. You know, the big bang could have a, you know, could have a, a, a big bang part two and we could all could yeah. implode in on ourselves. So every moment is another act of creation because the next moment is not guaranteed. So for me, I think it is extraordinary, you know, just to, just to expound on something a little bit more, it is extraordinary that I, I was, di I was diagnosed uh, 16 years ago, 2007. Yeah. So 16 years ago, I was diagnosed as bipolar and I came to understand it as sort of th there's some wiring in my brain that uh and I'm again I'm oversimplifying that that is a little amiss and it causes and that my brain chemistry and my neurochemistry is a little off it's it's not um what would be uh keeps me in what we might call normal ranges mm -hmm. and I've been trying for 16 years now to mitigate that I, I tried pharmaceuticals at one point and wasn't deriving the benefits uh, that I needed to. So I, I kind of weaned off of those. I've tried all different kinds of other practices, writing and just all different kinds of things. And last year, for the first time, I finally started meditating, literally even just three minute guided meditations. And for the first time, I experienced the very benefits that um, my psychiatrist, psychologist, both were telling me I was supposed to be deriving from medication. Yeah. To me, that is extraordinary from sitting down and breathing for three minutes at a time, yeah. figuring out how to, you know, note my thoughts. Cause I have like squirrel brain thoughts are constantly entering in and finding certain practices. So I could sit still for, you know, three minutes, five minutes, sometimes 10, 15, and even 20 minutes now. Um, to me, that is extraordinary that my brain is literally getting rewired. My chemistry is, is literally like concretely being re you know, it, yes. it's getting mixed up in all the best ways, you know? Yeah. So as someone who is diagnosed as bipolar now to experience the benefits of that and having more normal ranges and more um, uh, normative responses to me, that's extraordinary from what sitting down and breathing for three minutes. <laughs> I know. Right. Well, that's, and I think that's also kind of indicative of you talk about rewiring of the brain and we're seeing that this is happening in all different aspects of our lives, the rewiring of our brain, some for more positive, yeah. much like you're saying, and then some for kind of this negative rewiring of yeah. the brain that is causing people to not have critical thinking skills. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's the negative neuroplasticity as well, yes. undesirable ways. You know, there's a, a movie with Michael Douglas. I forget the name of it. But it's basically he gets in a traffic jam in L.A. traffic and then he goes crazy, he goes nuts. <laughs> and, and then at the end of the movie, I don't remember the exact line he says, but he's looking at these police at the edge of a pier. He's standing and he's like, wait, I'm the one who's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, how did I get here? How did I get here? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's wild. But man. sometimes if we can just disrupt that, if we can recognize it in ourselves or our loved ones and say, you need to take a beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's what's difficult when going back to the beginning of this is when, how do you take that beat? When someone, you talked about Denver Riggleman says, I'm just, you're no longer, you're, you're dead to me. Yeah. Like you're no longer, how do you, 
how do you heal that situation when it feels so like cut and dry? Yeah. Yeah. With that. Well, so I, I do have an answer for that, but it might not be satisfactory for some folks. <laughs> Uh, so number one is identifying those who you, it, it's not going to work for everybody. I, I don't have an infinite uh, bandwidth. You know, I, there there are folks that I am uh, friendly with, but maybe not friends with, that I get to a point where I say, this is causing more harm and I cannot do good in this situation. So I need I I need to just, Throw, I, I need to say, all right, I'm calling it a day, uh, at least for now, for this season, because we're clearly not having productive conversations. Yeah. That said, there's a circle of people where I don't, I will not give up on these people in my life. I will not give up on our relationship. So though in those situations, there are some folks where we're so far apart and we continue to upset each other, but Back in the day, it happened with my dad back in 2000. And for about three and a half, four years, we had such a fraught relationship. It was over religion because uh, I grew up in an observant Jewish household. We went to an Orthodox synagogue and then I became a Christian when I was 29. Very fraught. But one conclusion he arrived at before I did was we don't want to give up on the relationship. Uh, he was initially thinking about sitting Shiva for me, which is the ritual Jewish people go through when somebody in, in their immediate family dies. But he, he stopped just short of that, and we continued to have dialogue. And we frustrated each other, made each other upset, angry, yeah. all kinds of stuff for three and a half years. But we kept, you know, live to fight another day, you know, and, and live to love another day eventually was was what came to came to fruition. Is we live to fight another day, but then we live to love another day. And what I saw, and I, one of the things I learned was that I can't, I can't convince somebody kind of like the idolatry thing, got to recognize the degrees. Yeah. I can't convince somebody even on a single position to make 180 degree. I'm just not that compelling. Uh, I can't make that compelling of an argument. And frankly, I don't think anybody can, but I can make one degree. I have one degree of persuasion in a conversation. I think if I'm standing on the truth, if I'm standing on firm ground and I'm coming in love, I think that I can have one degree of persuasion but the caveat to that is I have to be willing to be persuadable because mm -hmm. if my intent is really to pursue the truth and to pursue, to nurture a relationship, then I have to be willing to be persuadable. So there's, there's just a lot of caveats. And at the end of the day, we'll arrive at it together. If we're, if we're coming in goodwill and good faith, I think that we can arrive at it together. Just state in the relationship, identify mm -hmm. relationships that, are doing more harm than good, you know, because we're, we're human beings. We, we, no, none of us have infinite capacity. So there are some folks where it's just like, you know what, we're better off just like finding different crowds to hang with. Right. And that's right. fine. That's a, you know, somebody else will work, work on that person. Yeah. I, I, cause I can't do it, but I have the capacity for about, you know, I don't know whether it's six relationships, 12 relationships, 112 relationships. I do have a certain capacity and I'm going to stay, I'm going to live to fight another day. And then I'm going to live to love another day. Yeah. So that's kind of my approach to it. Well, it's an interesting approach too. And I think what's sometimes hard is um, if it's a family member or someone you're close to. And what if you reached a decision that 
this I just can't be in it with this person. Yeah. You know, I think it makes it's one thing if it's maybe friends or something, but when someone who raised you or something and it feels like the end of something it really does, you know. Yeah. And, you know, if you're meant to come back together, it'll happen. Yeah. Like in, in former Congressman uh, Riggleman's story, uh, it was a, over a year that he wasn't able to talk, even talk to his mom. But then there was a death in the family and uh, they came back together by circumstance. And the strength of that relationship, that bond that they had, living yeah. that life that they lived together, yeah. uh, they, they had been through a lot together, that pervades, that transcends some rhetorical argument. Yeah. You know, that can penetrate some of the illusion that led to their severance, you know? <laughs> yeah, most so. definitely. Yeah. And no, I, I, and I like to think about it that way when I, you know, about my own life and talking to other people, like, well, what, what are the other factors in this that are not just this one singular issue? This should not be the, the death knell of us. Yeah. We've experienced so many good things, you know, this, and then think about it, like of, taking this one issue and then really look at it as like, actually, maybe the person who you look up to telling you this doesn't even care about it themselves. <laughs> they just, they pulled you into it. Just right. so, you know, it's like, it, look at it as like, man, that's the duping. You actually may be getting duped here. <laughs> like, that's right. Don't worry that's about, a, let's that, worry about us, our relationship, you know? That's a really good point because I've recognized often times when I got reeled into a conversation because the person's agenda that I was uh, conversing with, yeah. their agenda wasn't to find some higher truth. Their their agenda was a contentious one. They wanted to pull me into a contest, a rhetorical contest, but yeah. a contest nonetheless, so that they could feel like they won some rhetorical contest, or maybe they were under the illusion that others were watching this contest and they could pound their chest when they beat me at this uh, <laughs> imaginary thing. And uh, yeah, and I I try to recognize when somebody isn't coming in goodwill and good faith, mm. when you know they're they're not really uh, moored by the truth. I try to recognize that and uh, avoid those conversations, and or maybe just check that person. Like if I know them in a different context, yeah. and I know like hey, this is a good guy, I can hang out with him, have a beer with him, whatever. And now all of a sudden they're they're kind of spewing Hannity's talking points or something <laughs> like that. Like, hey, dude, I listened to the first seven minutes of his show on POTUS today, too. Like, it's all good. We, we, I, okay, I can repeat it back to you. Can we talk now? Can we, like, have a human conversation now? You know? What are so, the signs, you think, of, of someone coming that way? I think this is really important because I think often sometimes people don't often recognize what they may be getting into with someone or they're not cognizant of it. So in your mind, what are the signs of someone who's not coming in goodwill? Like you kind of like, all right, I'm recognizing for what this is as we're going through it. It it usually takes me a little bit of time because sometimes I'm dense. And honestly, I do have admittedly sometimes narcissistic tendencies as well as uh, tendencies to project. I think that um, I think that a lot of folks think the way that I do. So I get locked into these proclivities, if you will, mm. um, the proclivities of thinking like a not narcissism is a, is a complex thing, but like mm -hmm. always thinking that I'm right. Well, of course I'm right. And if, if I'm right, of course you'll agree with me, but then also <laughs> the projection of, well, I think this way, naturally everyone should think this way, yeah. right. Or feel this way or believe this way. So once I recognize that in myself, I come with a little bit of a clearer vision, not that I'm able to shed it completely, but I come with a little bit of a clearer vision to recognize, Oh, I see. We're like, 
30 comments into this dialogue on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And this dude hasn't even, or whoever it is, hasn't even once intimated something along the lines of, oh, that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. Hmm. Or or even like a first cousin, twice removed, dog sitters, second cousin of version of that. You know, like if, if there's no possibility, if we're 30 comments in and there's no possibility that either one of us are like, huh, that's interesting. Let me think hmm. about that. And there's no version of that that's happened. What are we doing here? Yeah. You know, or if I say something in direct response to this person is asking me, uh, and, and I assume they're asking in good faith and they really want my thoughts on something. And I share that and their response isn't in response to what I just provided them, which was, you know, in response to what they were asking directly of me. Um, then I know they're just sort of kind of throwing arrows or taking different rhetorical yeah. arrows out of a quiver and just shooting darts, you know, shooting arrows. Um, so I try to recognize that, you know, but I also, I also ha- hold out hope that that moment, Monica Guzman is great. Uh, she has this great book and that's what it's called. I never thought of it that way. Mm. So she calls them intuit moments uh, for I-N-T-O-I-T. I never thought of it that way. Um, she's a great journalist and she's done experiments on this um, uh, with, with an organization that she's a part of. Uh, and I, I just try to, I hold out hope that there is going to be some moment like that. And maybe, again, maybe somebody can influence me. Like my son didn't get the vaccine and, and that was a big deal. And I didn't understand it. I disagreed with it. I went about it in all kinds of the wrong ways. Uh, but then eventually he let me in uh, and he let me into the conversation. He let me into his thinking. He let me into why he dug his heels in at a certain point. It was partly, yeah. admittedly, my fault. Um, but at the at the very least, eventually I came to understand it a little bit better. And I never thought of it from his perspective. Um, I still disagree with it, but at least we came to a to a mutual understanding. And he came to understand uh, certain boundaries that other folks in his life had. Like at the very least, at a certain point uh, when the pandemic was still, you know, ro- killing people, rocking and rolling. Yeah. Um, you know, we were in the thick of it. Uh, he, at the very least, would get tested before a family gathering, for example, uh, before he entered into that. You know, he'd respect, uh, you know, mask wearing in certain uh, circumstances. You know, so he didn't get the vaccine, but that's cool. Like we understood each other a little bit better and we had, you know, we had a certain amount of persuasion over each other. So, you know, we could still disagree on certain things, but I don't know that that to me at at the very least recognizing we got to a point where we weren't getting anywhere, but where can we get to that place where we can say, huh, that's interesting. I didn't think of it from your perspective. I, I never thought of it that way. I love that. And it has made me think about where do we have to get to to get to that point in politics? Where is it? I haven't thought about it that way. And 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 also, there has been new data uh, about that. Forty percent of our of Americans now consider themselves to be independent. Whatever yeah. version of that that is, it's pretty new. Yeah. What does that say about our nation? And two, is that kind of the I didn't think about it moving towards I didn't think about it that type of thing well there are some things where I think we have to compete the independence I've heard 40 to 42 percent as well Um, I think that we and I'm referring now to independence we have to think we have to compete on the same planes as the extremists there are some Mm. things that I'm not I'm I'm simply not willing to uh, fight with the language of some extremists. I'm not willing to engage in in violent 
protest, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think there's a place for nonviolent resistance. When it comes to politics, I think that if organizations like the Forward Party, which is Miles yeah. Taylor, former Governor Christine Whitman, she was EPA administrator, and um, a- Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, yeah. Yeah. If they are able to compete at the state and local levels, or perhaps at U.S. House level districts, if they can raise enough money to really compete in several of those districts, um, then it, it it just requires money. I know in my district of California 27, the reason that uh, Representative Mike Garcia is only playing to the most extreme wings of the Republican Party, despite the fact that this is the purple, one of the purplest districts in the country, is because that's where he gets his money from. Hmm. So if, if somebody is a well-funded candidate and they're getting money from independent groups or moderate groups or centrist groups or groups that that their caveat to them uh, to to them um, giving to a campaign is, well, you have to join the um, problem solvers caucus, mm. you know, I, so that's that's a that's fighting on that plane. Right. Um, it's also uh, media you know, there's, there's incentives. So it's not just money, it's media appearances and access. So Mike Garcia appeals to that audience because the the media appearances that he's making are on Fox business or Fox right. news or on uh, OANN. And there's a certain audience, a certain con- con- uh, constituency that's watching him on those platforms. But he, if he can also appeal to audiences that say are uh, reading the dispatch or listening to the dispatches um, podcasts or on the bulwark and listening to, to the bulwarks podcasts. Those are more moderate audiences. Those, those audi- the, the audience there have nuanced positions, uh, nuanced opinions on a lot of different positions. So I think, I think as media out, independent media outlets like that grow the dispatch in particular, mm-hmm. or politicology is one of my favorite uh, platforms as they continue to grow, then it, it will have more influence more broadly. So it's a money thing. It's a media thing. It's a, it's a civic engagement thing. And frankly, it, at the end of the day, it all comes down to individual uh, citizens, individual engaged citizens and our own behavior, our own choices. So yeah, there's no one big sweeping uh, solution. I think yeah. it's a lot of little things, a lot of individual choices. Yeah, no, it sounds like, I mean, that certainly is more logical, <laughs> the approach to that, that it's going to be a multifactorial situation to break through. I wonder, like, because right now it's so much, a lot of things are done based off of which party you're a part of, or yeah. what side of the aisle. How does that get broken up so that this is not such the dominant landscape? And maybe it's just because there's so much money tied into these things and constituencies, but it was like, how does this get broken up so that it feels more like, cause I always hear people say, well, I just, I'm just going to choose this side. It's like, like it's this binary decision all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was like, how do we get past this binary decision-making where people feel like they have to be on this side or is it just part of our tribalism as people? You know, some of it is pretty set. I, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a fellow named Pete Dominic and I, I like the guy. I respect the guy. He's he's definitely left, uh, not just mm-hmm. left of center, but pretty far left. Uh, yeah. Um, and he has a lot of really, really intelligent guests on his show. Uh, dr- around the election, I shared, I shared something 
And I said, I don't understand how friends of mine can't even fathom the possibility of voting for somebody from the, the other party mm -hmm. if they affiliate with one party, one sure. major party or the other. Oh, man, he was all over me. And he retweeted it on his um, yeah. the comment on his platform. And so his 40,000, 50,000 mm -hmm. followers were all just like banging away at me. <laughs> Um, it was uh, it was intimidating and suffocating, but Pete ended up uh, he and I kept in touch. He ended up coming on my program. We still really disagreed about it. He he f said flat out, no, 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 that triggers me. We're just beyond the point of ever considering the possibility of voting for <laughs> a Republican. What occurred to me is that um, a, a lot of things occurred to me. One is he wasn't really giving space to the possibility that there's somebody who still identifies as a Republican that could be some something some other flavor of it yeah that isn't trumpian or isn't sure. you know matt gatesian or marjorie taylor green <laughs> you know like there are others who still identify as republican who are you know conservatives based on their principle principled conservatives you yeah. know that they read burke in college and were persuaded <laughs> by you know by that philosopher's uh content by you know or or maybe they watched the evolution of William F. Buckley in more recent yeah. history. And they were persuaded by his debates with very erudite liberals. Uh, so that, and that's more of my formation is, um, you know, when we think of um, liberal, you know, old school liberal, right. Right. You know, yeah. or libertarian. Um, so I think that, okay, so here's the thing. I think that it is something that can be broken up more relationally than transactionally hmm. and i we've been talking about it uh, already here in a couple of ways but i think that again i don't think i made a ton of headway with pete dominic in that instance but the fact is he came back for a co another conversation the fact is he responded to my follow-up email hey man thanks it was nice to see you you know I, I i'm sure we made each other upset about a couple yeah. of different things but and he responded hey thanks for thanks for staying in the conversation you know, so again, it goes back to that idea of like one degree, you know, yes. and and he he caused me to think about a couple of things. Like, do I want to identify as a small business conservative going forward? Because mm -hmm. that clearly has a different resonance with a number of people. They immediately think of, you know, certain things uh, that doesn't align with with my philosophy of how I approach business, how I engage with my community and that sort of thing. So he made me think about a few things. But what I mean by relationally versus transactionally is, again, if I want to win a contest, I'm going to be frustrated again and again and again. I'm yeah. not going to get very far. But if I'm committed to that relationship, I think that we can we can stay in this thing together. We can stay in this American experiment together. We can stay in being neighbors with each other a little bit longer. Um, yeah, we can stay again. You know, live to fight another day. Live to live love another day. Yeah, it's funny. I've had that conversation with people too about voting for a certain side and stuff and same thing. I would never do this. I said, well, it sounds like a lack of understanding the spectrum of possibilities for that. And so I would, you know, I would give, I always give examples of like, I mean, if think about it, if you're very hardcore into this and this is a very large thing, I said, but there are many scientists, uh, cosmologists who think, you know, life must be teeming in the universe. There must be alien civilizations all over the place but we'll never consider that on the spectrum of possibilities that Earth may be the only place that has life. All these things are just possibilities on a spectrum that could exist. They could. Yeah. I'm not saying they are. They do. Yeah. But you have to, like, in your mind, think, 
these are possibilities. It's just like thinking in your life, there's a possibility I could walk out the door and not be alive. And there's a possibility <laughs> I could live for 50 more years. Where that yeah. All of these things are possibilities. I'm not saying they're going to happen. But to close yourself off to the possibilities of the spectrum, then I think that's a dangerous place. Because then you're just saying like, and I've used this a lot too. It's like, if you love going out on the ocean and boating and you believe nothing bad will ever happen, you will not be prepared when something bad happens because yeah. it's a possibility. It's, it's like, a possibility. It's always a possibility. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> I used to, I used to ride motorcycles and I had this great Harley that I really tricked yeah. out. And what made me a good motorcycle rider is I was always just a little bit afraid, Right. <laughs> not afraid to the point of, you know, pallor, <laughs> being paralyzed, but like <laughs> just a little bit afraid so that I needed to be looking out and yeah. alert at all times, you know, and, and, and not, not, it, it takes what you're describing. It takes a lack of imagination, you know? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we <laughs> we want to be able to at least imagine the possibilities and uh, you know, some great work is always done when you don't recognize the process. Like, yeah. I don't know. Did you watch the, I think it was either on Apple or Disney plus uh, the Beatles last album that they, no, they made. No, I didn't watch that. No. Um, the uh, what, what's his name? Jacks, Peter Jackson had like hundreds of hours of footage and he curated it into, I forget how long it was, but it was about a dozen hours altogether. Okay. And what you're watching is the dialogue between the four members of the Beatles and other people in the room. And especially a lot of the, uh, creative process unfolding, especially between Paul and John. And to us, if we just took a snippet of that, again, it would just look mundane. Like, what is he doing? Yeah. And he's just kind of taking some random words like, uh, <laughs> you know, like, let's do this city instead of that city because it has the right number of syllables in yeah. it, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, it's uh, the, the documentary, I think was called Get Back. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it just, we don't recognize it. Uh, you know, a great, a great uh, musician, a virtuoso musician, yeah. a lot of their virtuosity is simply playing scales, you know, or, or great painters, Picasso and, and George yeah. Brock, they would talk about their brushes. <laughs> <You know? Yeah>. <laughs> like <laughs> we think these profound things and they're talking about their brushes, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I think to, to, there's a lot of themes that seem to be coming up a, a few times in this conversation, but it's recognizing the sanctity in the mundane, like yeah. recognizing the extraordinary in the ordinary, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. I just, it's just, you get in these conversations and you start thinking and you just kind of have like a hard no, like immediately. Yeah. I always think there's something there. There's something there that I need to figure out what, like, I need to like, not be like, what do you think? It is more of like, just ask questions and, and come in a very kind way. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm just interested in, in your philosophy behind this Yeah. for that. Cause I did this with somebody that I know cause they were like hardcore Democrat, super left, you know, they hate Donald Trump big time. And they're like, I said, well, this is just a thought experiment. Uh, you know, would you vote for someone in the democratic party that literally embodied everything Donald Trump embodied and they paused i don't think they ever were put this before and they said i probably wouldn't do it then and i was like so yeah. there is a possibility then you, yeah there's this there's always a possibility 
I was like, no, I, you know. I have friends that were lifelong Republicans. I have friends that, you know, they started in politics in the Reagan administration, were in the George H.W. Bush yeah. administration, were major speechwriters for uh, Bush too. And they are no longer Republicans and right. they have voted now for Democrats because yeah. I'm sure when they were in the Reagan administration, 20 nothing years old, just getting started in that world, they could never imagine the possibility of voting for a Democrat. <laughs> but they couldn't imagine the possibility of Donald Trump becoming president right. and taking over the Republican Party. You couldn't you imagine. Know? Just like when I was 20, I couldn't imagine I'd be writing and talking to a bunch of people experiencing psychedelics. It would literally blow my mind when I was 20. It's a, the <laughs> thing about, of course, you don't know. Even in the course of your lifetime, you experience many lifetimes yeah. of thoughts and ideas and how you see the world. So to me, the possibility part is always there. Yeah. Or that, just where what's the season we're in? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that possibility. <laughs> yeah. Imagination is funny. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, I feel yeah. like we're in that season kind of uh, and I want to turn it back to this kind of the last part um, with religion. I've interviewed so many different people um, and, and different aspects of religion. There's a big deconstruction movement of religion happening right now. Um, and there's lots of data talking about especially young people's relationship with religion. I would love for you to talk about that movement or what you're seeing, at least yourself out there. Yeah, I was at a seminar slash retreat this last weekend and someone who's very knowledgeable, uh, got, went to divinity school, uh, is a pastor. And part of what he was saying was, you know, I'm really pissed off at Constantine. Mm. <laughs> And I heard, I've heard that refrain before. I actually heard it from my father, who uh, Constantine was this one of the last emperors mm -hmm. before the fall of Rome. And what he did was he made Christianity the state religion of, of Rome, right? And all of a sudden, this, this band of followers of this rabbi, this first century, they didn't think of it as first century, but you know what I'm talking about, yeah. um, named Jesus or Yeshua ben Yosef. Uh, it was a scraggly bunch of you know theological rebels uh, they went to a position of power. And that's been the history of Christianity for the last 1700 years or so. And uh, my father, actually, who's still an Orthodox Jew, uh, he came to a very similar conclusion because I, over the years, we gave each other stuff to read, stuff to consider. And um, he came to a conclusion after reading, in particular, a historian named N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, uh, who, who writes his specialty is first century Israel, first century Palestine, that area. And uh, the character of Jesus and who he probably was historically. And my dad came to this conclusion that Yeshua ben Yosef, the guy we know is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He came to the conclusion that that person, number one, lived. Number two was what uh, Jews would consider a tzaddik, like the great rabbi of his generation. Also a, a prophet in the tradition of Malachi, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, but... He says, and he was he was a, a Messiah candidate, as we would think of it, but he was a failed Messiah candidate. And then as we revisited that conversation a few times the next year, he goes, I still think he was a Messiah candidate, but I think, or a, a failed Messiah candidate, but I don't think the failure was his. The failure was the failure of the people of Israel of his generation. Mm. It's a very, very nuanced understanding of who yeah. Jesus was. But he goes, <laughs> my father's inimitable. Well, I guess I'm going to try to imitate him. So imitable way. He goes, but I'm really pissed off at Constantine. Constantine <laughs> stole Jesus from the Jews. <laughs> I love that impression, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I think that what we're seeing now in terms of deconstruction is we're starting to, to try to either peel away or completely deconstruct where the institutional church has gone more the way of Constantine and less the way of Christ. Mm. And I, I welcome that. Me too. As soon as, as, soon <laughs> as I became a Christian, I, I became a Christian because Rabbi Jesus, I found more compelling than any Devar Torah uh, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount more compelling than any Devar Torah I'd ever read, any explanation on the Torah that I had ever read. I came to it based on theological convictions. When I walked into a church, I realized the community of the church was more primarily defined by social and political convictions than theological ones. So when 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 push comes to shove and I see that what Jesus was talking about in terms of strangers and orphans and widows, mm -hmm. what Jesus was talking about, what we would, uh, a term we might use contemporary today marginalized people mm -hmm. uh, our friends from church their a priori position or their their uh, their disposition if you will their preferences would be more uh, averse to what Jesus was saying yeah. I'm always willing to stay in the conversation if we're if we're if they say they're Christians and they're followers of Jesus and then we come across some scripture that's at odds with their political or social preferences. Yeah. Hey man, let's read some scripture. Let's see what it says. You want to kick me out of the Bible study? That's cool. I still got scripture, yeah. you know? Um, and that's happened more than, more than <laughs> one occasion. I, and I welcome that deconstruction yes. because then folks are going to have to choose. Well, do I really believe in Jesus of scripture? Do I really believe in what these accounts, these gospel accounts are saying? Or do I prefer what Donald Trump is saying? Because the two yeah. are very much at odds. I could turn to virtually any page of the Bible and it testifies against the words, actions, and character of Donald Trump. And, and that might piss some people off, but it is what it is. It is what And it if is. you want to talk about it, let's open up our Bible. Let's figure it out. <laughs> it's exactly right. It's exactly right. There's actually, I haven't, I, I was, I forgot what I was doing, but I was reading about, I think it's a book. Maybe it's, it's kind of like, kind of a sci-fi book, but it's basically the, the, the premise is that, um, Jesus returns, but humanity rejects Jesus mm. uh, because um, Jesus is actually teaching the things he's like about the things that we literally just talked about. Marginalized communities, love and society is like, mm, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, is this going to make us money? <laughs> like, so well, they jail Jesus because he's doing good things for underserved people. And I often think, would that be the reality? With this talk about oh, yeah. conceptual no, thinking, right? Would that be the reality? More than likely, yes. It would not be believed to be the person he was. Uh -uh. It would be right. jailed. And even all these good things were not, if they weren't making money or they weren't sensationalized, it'd be like, who is this nut job? You know, it'd be like, <laughs> it wouldn't even, you wouldn't even recognize the Messiah. No, no. And and it's not a new story. If you look at the disciples, right. the, the, the people who were walking with him of at the course. time that he was walking the earth, yeah. they're like, all right, Jesus. All right, Rabbi, when are we going to kick some ass? <laughs> we got to win this thing. We got to, you know, we got to redeem. Warriors we got to do this tikkun olam thing. And yeah. he's like, well, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. Yep. You know, in order to live, you have to die. Right. And they're like, okay, so you're going to die. You're going to be, you're going to raise again. And then you're going to kick some ass. He's like, no, that's not, <laughs> no. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> they just, they were like, okay, so when do we kick some that's ass? Exactly when do we right. get the throne? And I want to sit on the right side of your throne. And like, they're thinking of power and glory and, that's right. and, you know, riches. And he's like, no, in his, his path to victory was through the cross that's and we right. still don't recognize it. 
No, it was an upside down victory. It's an upside so. down victory. And I think it's, it's fathom for, it's, it's hard for people to fathom that because, and I think that's what it's turned into for a lot of the extremist aspect is like, this is the warrior Jesus. This is, you know, what Kristen Kobez Dumez wrote about. It's this John yeah. Wayne Jesus. It's yeah. crazy. Like we're going to kick ass, man. Like Jesus yeah. going to kick some monkey asses out here and stuff. It's like, wait, this has nothing to do with this. Like, what are right. you talking about? I'm like, yeah. Have yeah. you even looked at the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jesus like, I, so I have this friend who is a trans, queer, Latinx mm -hmm. person, ethicist, theologian, yeah. and um, ha had him on my show. And uh, some some of my um, some commenters, when we posted the uh, the episode, they were giving him all kinds of crap, whether it's about the Latinx thing or about yeah. the trans thing. And his response is always like, hey, let's go get some supper. Let's go get a beer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no, 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 I want to fight with you. He's like, no, let's, that's kind of what Jesus said. He exactly. like, people are coming, hey, let's break some bread. Like literally, like, let's break some bread. <laughs> let's fill some of these baskets with some fish and we can hang out and talk and eat. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, that was Jesus' way. So yeah, I mean, he I, showed up to the party and filled the wine, bat, wine, you know, a deal up, man. He was like, all right. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and that guy, uh, we had another, we shared another episode from a, another show that I'm involved with of this guy, Daryl Davis, great musician. Oh, yeah. You know who Daryl Davis is? I know is? who Daryl Davis is, yeah. The way he describes this, I don't know if this Man. was on our recording, but the way he described the story was uh, the first time, one of the first times a guy from the KKK approached him. He was, yeah. he was, hey man, let's get a beer. That's and right. KKK dude's like, don't you know who the hell I am? He's like, yeah, let's go get a beer. That's right. <laughs> and he breaks them down and they couldn't believe anymore over yeah. time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's the way I'm going to follow, uh, you know, yeah. and every once in a while I might, might get punched in the throat, but <laughs> that's all right. I'll take it. If, you know, yeah. but more often than not, we'll get to have that beer, that coffee or whatever. And that's, and that's right. Stuff. That's literally, I feel like what Jesus wants, let's just sit down at the table. Let's chat. Let's, uh, and because most people come at it from a very offensive or defensive position with people. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, Jesus didn't do that. No. And that, that's why, like, when I see different things, this crazy warrior stuff, I'm like, okay, I, I'm not, what happened? Like, yeah, this is so far from actually what happened. Like, so yeah. let's discuss this. <laughs> like, right. Who told you this right. shit, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just want to know. Yeah. Like, it's Asking, like if somebody yeah. tells you about the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's like the hotbed thing, right? Constitution, Bill of Rights. And then you learn they actually never read it. <laughs> That's right. Shit. Like, how, how do you, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it happens like, we. I mean, just start like, and again, like if, if scripture's not your thing, all right, let's read the Constitution. Let's read the Bill of Rights. Because a lot of folks who are like separation of church and state, you know yeah. where it comes from? The First Amendment, you know, the Establishment Clause in the same place, free expression. Mm -hmm. And like, it's all in, like that tension is supposed to happen, you know? It's not the <laughs> absence of church and state. Like, it, it's just, let's embrace the nuance, you know? Let's embrace the nuance. And uh, man, I appreciate the nuance, Corey, so much. I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. But how can everyone get more Corey in their life? How about that? <laughs> I don't know. My wife would be like, I've had enough. No, no, okay, just kidding. Yeah, she's out of town. Oh, but you know what? She was so happy to see me when I went to visit. It was really nice. Oh, it was very nice. endearing. We felt like we were dating all over again. It was awesome. Beautiful. Um, so easiest way to find me, I'm on all the socials uh, at Corey S. Nathan. And that's with uh, Corey with an E, S as in Sam. So at Corey S. Nathan, Nathan like the hot dogs. And then you can find my uh, my program, Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Easiest way is the the website politicsandreligion.us. 
www.politicsandreligion.us. Beautiful, man. I can't wait to release this. This is going to be awesome, man. It's such. I really appreciate you having me on, Darian. It was great hanging out with you, man. We should we should hang out in person. We should grab that beer. <laughs> I know. I'm all about it. Believe me. I'm definitely all about it. And uh, I, I'm just grateful. Honestly, just grateful. I feel like I'm always learning because I'm always talking to different people. And it's, it's, uh, it's just a pleasure to speak that's, with someone like yourself. So That's awesome. My pleasure. Absolutely.